Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment and your host for Media Maven's podcast here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. What's up, Joey? Hey, everything's going well out here in Arizona and looking forward to today's podcast. Yeah, I'm super excited. We have Eric Ulrich on, who is a co-founder of Global Institute and former SEAL team commander. Eric, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invite. Uh, so I'm super excited because we had your partner, we had Mick on uh, a little while ago because we're you know, on our global crisis watch. So I know you guys created Lobo Institute together. I, I kind of want to go over that because I love the story of how you guys created Lobo running through a jungle. Do you want you tell us? I mean, I, I know we can't talk about a lot of the Navy SEAL stuff, which is where most of my questions are. But let's talk. I mean, you did most of your career as a SEAL, you guys created Lobo Institute, um, which is an amazing thing that you guys are doing. But like, tell us how you transitioned from your military background to the Lobo Institute and the story of how you and Mick created this. So Mick and I met briefly in 2010 in Afghanistan. Uh, and then fast forward, two years and then we're in 2011 we're both working in kenya and we're dealing with some of the extremism that is is emanating from the dark continent as threats against the international community i was you know in in charge of some of the some of the you know more the the secretive military side of things and mick we worked hand in hand with the intelligence community so he and i had to come up with ways to help mitigate that threat from terrorists or people out of Africa, um, specifically against the international community. So we, we worked hand in, hand in hand for a number of weeks. Within those circles, uh, people had different opinions. And there's a little bit of, of office conflict between the intelligence agency or some of the soft side of things. Uh, so Mick and I, we realized that, that uh, each of us, we like to run. Uh, we like to do physical things that were outside. And as leaders of both organizations, we knew that if we didn't solve some of our differences between us, that our organizations wouldn't follow suit. So we started logging some miles, running through some rainforests in Kenya uh, and, uh, and some jungles. And as we were working through the differences in our offices, we came to understand that he and I both had a very similar mindset when it came to accomplishment. And that's that that the, the end state solution is what mattered, not exactly how you got there. Um, so we weren't tied parochially to our organizations, one, two. Um, we were just watching that the US was investing more and more GDP into fighting extremism. And uh, yes, we were able to reduce some of the threat to the international community, but overall our assessment was that the trend lines were going in the wrong direction. So we started talking about things that we could do after government service, backgrounds that we could still use to try and help bring about conflict resolution. So that's Lobo Institute. Lobo Institute is a 
conflict resolution uh, company. And we do things like bring our combined experiences and perspective as consultants primarily to um, other conflict resolution entities, large ones, maybe things like, you know, USAID or approaching, uh, you know, the World Bank on maybe taking a different look at Yemen per se, or, you know, potentially, hopefully something in, in coordination with the United Nations. So as Lobo Institute, we look for those opportunities and we try to, to, to come in there primarily with an eye on security um, because, you know, between the intelligence community and, you know, the former, the SEAL community, those are where he and I are, are deepest and where there's not a lot of former guys like us that are running around in those circles. So the perspective is unique and it's different. And we just need to, to try and fold those perspectives into those ongoing conflict resolution efforts. And that's kind of how Mick and I went from USG lives, or sorry, US government lives to low ones to lives. God, I mean, and I know like we talked about this, we just, we can't talk about it, but I know it's such a tight, tight community in the SEAL teams and, and it, just what you're doing on such a higher level with intelligence is amazing. You know, and I'm excited to have you here because, you know, you guys have done such great stuff and I know you guys are heading down to Uganda pretty soon and there are so many topics and so much going on out there in the world. I think sometimes here in the States, we get so focused on you know, our own administration issues last year, COVID, that we don't really, people sometimes overlook that there is much worse issues and conflicts in other parts of the world that they do need to help, they do need to be aware of. And one of the ones I think we can talk about, correct if I'm wrong, is child soldiering right now, correct? And uh, very passionate about it, yes. Is this, is this a pat, I mean, I, not to dive too deep in to the military background, but is this one of the things because you've had to deal with it in the past or is it just because you guys now have the freedom to go, you know, fund resolution and it is child soldiering is such a big topic and such one that does need a lot of help and support. How did you guys end up moving into this, um, this space or to this, this crisis, so to speak, topic? Nick and I each have uh, similar and different experiences when it comes to children in combat. Um, my exposure to children in combat was in Afghanistan in 2003. I just got a, a front row seat when children are involved in combat. And whether that's just a way of life in Afghanistan, you know, I mean, the you know, the fathers and the uncles take the younger boys with them when they go to run an ambush on, uh, you know, either a, a, a competing uh, military entity or, you know, what used to be a U.S. patrol. Um, so you just kind of see what, how it's either kids are ingrained in it or through various conflicts, whether it was ISIS or whether it was Al-Qaeda in Somalia, or East Africa, AQEA is, 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 is the common name for it, or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or ISIS, whether it's you know in Yemen or, or Syria and Iraq, you just start to see what forced combat looks like for a child. 
Um, and as a child, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll stick with the UN convention of anybody under the age of 18. Um, and so Mick and I have different experiences with it, but at the end of it, he and I got a really unique look into what being a child soldier is when we met this guy named Anthony Apoka, who was a child soldier, a forced child soldier. He was abducted at the age of 14 and he was a child soldier for about 10 years. Um, he was shot six times. Um, he, the last time he was shot, he had an RPG round that basically deflected off of his right, right peck. And uh, the fins of that, of that RPG almost pretty much tore his right arm off of his, off of his body. Um, and he was left for dead. He survived. He's extremely intelligent, extremely adaptive. He figured out ways, even though it was a cripple and as a young child soldier on how to survive in the jungles of Africa and still be within the Lord's, still be useful enough to the Lord's resistance army that they just didn't kill him themselves. Um, and eventually he became Joseph Coney's radio operator. And Joseph Coney was the mastermind behind the Darfur crisis, you know, 20,000 kids abducted from villagers because Coney needed an army. There was an army sitting there. It was just an army of abducted children. Yeah. And so when, when, when Mick and I got that unique look through his eyes on getting to know him over a number of years, um, spending hundreds of hours talking to him about his story, which we'll flesh out when we're in Uganda here uh, for you guys a little bit later in the month of June with Anthony, because we are going down there. Um, I, I, I hope to bring you and the and these and these podcast listeners along for kind of an amazing story because when Mick and I first heard it, it blew our hair back, and um, you know he he and I have, have traveled the world extensively. Mick and I have. And so to come across a story of, you know, like survival, uh, versatility, the human spirit, love, never say die, that is so deep that it, it, it'll, that it, that it, it rocked Mick and I, we were like, this has to see a wider audience, um, which is, which is why we made a documentary about it. But in all of that, um, and truly understanding the plight of child soldiers, Towards the end of my career, when I would see forced kids being used in combat, whether it was Al-Shabaab in Somalia or, or other forces, it made me realize just how, dis how utterly selfish the decisions by the adults are and how utterly helpless the decisions being forced upon them, the younger kids have. And that's just not right. And it's not right when as an international community, we, 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 we get all these laws, these treaties, and we, you know, we sign into these, uh, you know, UN resolutions, and then they're not, they're not followed, um, even by upstanding countries. So when, when Mick and I have looked at it, there is a way to make this better. There is a way to make it more right. Um, and that's, that's the approach that we've taken, not as local Institute, but as a, a nonprofit organization called End Child Soldiering. Um, which is, is, you know, is the story of Anthony and now our ongoing efforts to help raise the awareness of and limit the use of children being forced into combat. I have two questions uh, real quickly I want to get out. I know you guys, okay, so my first question, kind of a two-part question, 
I know you guys are heading to Uganda. I know you've seen a lot of this in your travels and in your background in military. What areas or nations or countries you think are worse off or like where's the worst part of the world that needs the most help and attention followed by, you know, why are you guys heading to Uganda? Are you heading down there to, to you know, I know you guys talk about conflict resolution to see what you could do to continue to stop the LRA from bringing more child soldiers in, or is there a, something else you guys could kind of pre? And I mean, I know we're talking live with you guys from down there with Anthony, and we're super excited to do that on Global Crisis Watch. But there's a lot of areas in the world that have the child soldiering issues, but you guys are targeting Uganda. Is that because it's the worst down there, or because your mission is to get down there to try to um, find some resolution to end it, or is it just not as prevalent in other parts of the world as down there? That was kind of a long question. Okay, so we'll break it down into into, into two parts, as you said. So, what areas? Um, that's one thing that that Nick and I kind of hold dear to is we definitely have a broad kind of perspective of you know a lot of the global conflict that's going on, and so we maintain awareness on where that conflict is either is either declining or where it's increasing, and a lot of the nuances within that uh, conflict. So. The areas of the world right now that are the most, the highest concentration of children being used as soldiers, it, it's head and sh heads and shoulders above anything else. It's, it's the Middle East. I mean, you know, what happened there in Syria and Iraq with ISIS is absolutely the largest problem right now that we have globally when it comes to children being used as, as soldiers and or the rehabilitation of, rehabilitation of children that have been forced into combat. Um, now, and, and exactly to your next question, which is like, okay, well, if the number one problem is, you know, all of the, the children being held indefinitely in refugee camps in Syria and Iraq, then why are you and Mick going to Uganda? We're going to Uganda because we came across this story with Anthony Apoka, uh, circa 2015. Um, we spent a couple of years running around with iPhones, GoPros, cameras and we put together this you know a 35 minute documentary on Anthony and Anthony's story Anthony and and his wife's story her name is Florence um that documentary got a little bit of legs uh we were asked to come up and do screenings at uh at, at, for the master's program at Yale for the international studies program and things like that um, Mick took it around to a number of screenings in Washington, D.C. when he was working out of the Pentagon. Uh, I accompanied him on a couple of those. But it tells this broad story about children being used as soldiers. Um, it, an author based out of Montana uh, that's a, a, a very good friend of our family, he watched a documentary and he does historical fiction stories. And he's done some incredible ones, especially ones... Uh, associated with war zones. So he, he wrote one that's, it's called Beneath the Scarlet Sky. It was about um, smuggling Jews um, out of Italy during World War II, up over the Alps passes and getting them into Switzerland. Um, it's a phenomenal story. He just did another one of a family out of the Eastern Bloc that were caught between the Russians and Germans and that ended up eventually, you know, a story of, of perseverance and they, they landed back in Montana. So the author's name is Mark Sullivan. Mark took a look at the documentary and he was like, I need to write that story. And when Mark writes a story, his readership is quite large now. 
it, it gets out to millions of people. So Mick and I felt that we had the ability through literary print to reach out to millions of people using Anthony's story as a vehicle to raise the awareness of child soldiering, right? And force child soldiering into combat. Um, and not only that, but Mark has been gracious enough that a portion of the proceeds from the book that, that he's in the process of writing is going to go towards end child soldiering. And with Mick and I through Lobo Institute having an idea about the conflicts and what's going on with conflicts globally, we want to become kind of the, the, the clearinghouse for funds and assistance to elements on the ground that would, in this case right now, with the highest need being in Syria and Iraq, we would channel funds and energy into Syria and Iraq, into those 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 uh, groups, those benevolent groups that are on the ground that are providing counseling for kids, rehabilitation forum, education forum, trying to make them viable members to get back into society. So that's it's it's kind of a full circle, and I, I know I that was that's a bit of a mouthful for me, you know, to kind of get through. But is is like. You know, if this is a basketball going through a python, are we tracking we tracking the progress? Yeah, no, no, it's good. I mean, are you guys planning? Is this the only is this is just one of the pat I don't say passion projects, one of the things you guys are working on at Lobo Institute is child soldiering. Are you guys hoping? I mean, are there any other areas like in the Middle East you guys are planning on kind of going to next to help? kind of resolve some of these issues and get the story out there? Or are there other issues, initiatives, global initiatives under the Global Institute that you guys have coming up down the road as well, in addition to the child soldiering? We decided initially, Global Institute, uh, we stood up in on the 1st of December of 2019. So we're about 18 months old as a, as a business. Uh, in child soldiering, we just filed for the 51C3 the nonprofit status with the U.S. IRS um, oh, about three months ago now. So um, there were initiatives, but Mick and I wanted to stick close to home on a problem that we knew deeply. And we sit on the board of directors for an organization called Grassroots Reconciliation Group. And they're a benevolent nonprofit organization that helps uh, helps with the rehabilitation of LR, former Lord's Resistance Army children, you know, people like Anthony. So we wanted to understand what this new, what this new world, this NGO world looked like was something that we understood well before we then looked to um, take it elsewhere. So that's kind of why we're focused a little bit closer into Uganda right now. Um, we have tabled the opportunity to look at um, channeling some some funds into uh, what's called the Al Hol camp uh, in, in Syria. Um, and uh, we almost did that with one of the Lobo um, expert cadre uh, who used to be a, a white helmet chief chief of staff of the white helmets. White helmets are an entity that that they go and they were like, you know, when there was a a bombing campaign or, or a bunch of bombs, you know, falling in Syria, they would go into the, into the building and stuff like that and try to rescue civilians that were trapped and things like that. They were kind of like a, a, a mobile 911 service in Syria. Right. Um, so with our expert cadre, we looked at 
trying to help us with providing internet and remote education opportunities into the alcohol camp um, there in, in uh, Syria. It just didn't quite get off the ground. Um, those are things that we will get to with time, but first we need to one, understand this, this new, you know, the, the NGO, the benevolent organizations, and two, honestly, you know, I mean, we need the funding and we're using, hopefully, the story of Anthony as one of the means to help fund the, our global efforts here, um, you know, but, but uh, yeah, you know, like, like everything, you have to, you have to go out there and have the means to do it. How many child soldiers do you know that are out there talking about the issues either? The fact that you guys are in this opportunity where you do know him, which is outstanding, you do know what's going on, and the fact you have, is it um, Mark? that's covering this. So I think you do, you, it's got to start somewhere. You know, they always take, it takes a village. You got to start somewhere to raise, a, raise aware, that raise awareness. Um, but I have, this is like more of a moral question for you. I just kind of want your thoughts on this because I know you said technically child soldiering, you kind of, you know, that 18 and under, right? And, but that we, at the other side, we know Israel, you have no choice but to put two years or two or four years into the army, once you turn 18, you don't have a choice. That is this law over there. And a lot of people, Israeli soldiers that I know, that's their goal since they were 14, 15. They wanted to serve. They wanted to do that. They knew what they needed to do. It's not child soldiering because obviously it's, it's ethical. It's Israel. They need protection. But I feel like, is there a gray area of Israel's laws about you must put time in, in the army at 18 given especially with all the conflict that goes on over there or is it just the way that they're going about recruiting kids into the army that is a more ethical cleaner way i mean i just don't know how to phrase this because child soldiering is anything under 18 but kids want to join the army in israel there you sir um so Kind of like the, your first, the, the topic that we just explored was a two-part question. I, I feel like this one is also a little bit of a two-part question. Um, so, you know, why don't you ever hear about this, right? Why don't you ever hear about it? Are there other child soldiers that are out talking about it? Um, there aren't. There was, you know, there was one book that was uh, from a child soldier in West Africa. I mean, it was a long time ago, 2005 or six. And it's called a long way gone. And it was the story of a child soldier. It was taken from a village, made to do a bunch of atrocities, told that his family and his, and his, and his clan would never take him back. And then fought there in, in Western Africa for a long time, got extremely messed up. And then, you know, it's like his path to recovery and eventually, you know, I think he ended up in the U S um, over time, you know, as, as a functioning and productive member of society. So that's one story. Another one, that people are off, often kind of comes to them is there's a, it, it was a video done by a guy, I believe in, in Los Angeles, but it's called Coney 2012. And they basically highlighted, Hey, how come we can't catch this guy that's responsible for abducting 20,000 plus kids and, you know, murdering tons of them and sending them into combat with no gun and just letting them get mowed down. And it's all for his twisted vision. Um, Besides that, you're right, that topic doesn't come up that often, but the numbers on, of children that are being forced to soldiers are increasing and increasing drastically 
you know, in the Middle East. In 2019 alone, I mean, they went up over 100,000 kids. Um, you know, I deployed in the Middle East and Africa, I mean, ever since from 2008 till 2020. Um, and yes, you see the combatants get younger and younger and younger with time. Um, it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's the longer even a low scale conflict goes on, the younger the ages go, it's because people get mowed down yeah. and they, therefore they, they keep reaching deeper into the, into, into the, into the pool. Right. And at the end of it, the only kids at the end of it are our kids. Yeah. And so, so, so I guess my two part, I'm good at the two part questions with you sure. too, because I have so much to talk about and this is such a big issue, but then if you look on the other hand, pivoting to Israel, the, these young 17, 18 year olds are so passionate about protecting their country and they want to be in the army and they want to get out there and they want to train. But I, is that like, are we, I mean, are we on the same page or are those just such separate political issues that are so far apart? You can't like discuss them both in the same conversation. Not even the same issue. It's, it's like saying, it's like trying to equate, um, you know, uh, ISIS going into an area that they've 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 taken over, and you know, putting putting a pistol in the face of an eighteen year old and saying, "Okay, you're either going to carry an AK for me, or I'm going to use this AK on you." One of the two. And then the other side of the conversation is a, a seventeen year old American that walks into a U.S army recruiting station in call it, you know, Homeland America and anywhere and gets his parents to sign the waiver so that at day one, he turns 18, he can enlist in the army or the, or the Navy or the Marines. Right. They're two totally separate yeah. conversations. And so even if, even though you're bringing up the example of Israel, Israel does have a mandatory service obligation of, of either two or four years. And you know, but, but the difference is, you know, in the ISIS example, yeah, you're going to carry this AK for me. And now we're going to go down to this, you know, this town 20 miles down the road and you're going to be in the thick of it and you're going to be in front of it until you're killed or you learn how to be a good combatant. Um, that's vastly different than an Israeli that has two years of, you know, mandatory civil service and they, you know, they might gravitate towards being a soldier or they might gravitate towards being an aid worker, but they have a choice and it's yeah. their choice in, in their role. And then they're also like trained and supported and all that. So two vastly different, it, it, different, it's, different just taking, it's just taking kids. I don't know, I guess my viewpoint is taking kids. And I know you, yeah, it, there's no right or wrong reason with Israel. Just, you're taking kids that are 17, 18, whether it's Israel, they want to walk into a U.S. Army place here. I mean, there's just so much violence in the world. And it just, it's just, it's like you said, it's just getting younger and younger, you know, whether it's, this is a bad example. I know I'm going to hate saying this, but it's like whether it's these guys from gangs here in the States to these child soldiers, there's just so much violence with the guns and everything going on. It's just there is just amazing to me that there's this it's like the wild west lately it's like we know that you know their gun laws are getting harder here and everything but we know that i think joe and i didn't we just joe didn't we have a discussion or a question about where the guns were coming from in another podcast was that with mick 
that question was with Mick about uh, we were talking about Palestinians, uh, how the uh, Hamas received their weapons. Got it. OK, so so and I don't this is a good question. Joe has so Joe, okay. you may want to have a one part question for Eric. Is that kind of the same? Where are these like down in um, Uganda and all these areas? Where are these guns and all these weapons coming from that they're putting in the hands of these kids? Because there's so many of them. The numbers of kids doubled uh, in the Middle East in the year 2019. And where the weapons come from, I mean, uh, uh, yeah. the, the Middle East and those conflict areas, it, it's a wash in, in guns. The, the, the guns isn't the, isn't the limiting factor. Um, I mean, you know, ISIS overran armories that we'd stood up the Iraqi army with. And I'm not saying that the U.S.'s approach to standing up the Iraqi army was wrong. I'm just saying that hundreds of thousands of weapons were overrun and then under the control of ISIS. So the, the guns isn't the, isn't the issue. Um, you know, the issue really is the, it's the use of kids. And I'm going to pivot on you. I'm going to take you to Somalia um, from Iraq and Syria. Uh, now let's let's pretend for a minute that um, you're a mother of, you know, they have a, a quite a few more kids over there, um, you know, m Muslim Muslim country. That you're a mother of of five kids, and um, you've been eking by on a world food program, uh, food distribution kind of thing, and whatever you can kind of get out of the out of the the bare dirt as far as as growing food. Um, comes around once a year for their taxes and you don't have any more cattle because it's in a drought and they died you don't have any sheep you the, you know you're not rich enough to have a camel um, but you still have to pay your taxes so not pay in money or cattle or, or or some sort of commodity your yearly tax is going to be your two sons or one, one of your daughters and a son but that's what's going on. You're paying your taxes now with kids. And, and yeah, I mean, there, that is where it is, it, it is devolved in a large amount of areas in Somalia when it comes to taxation at Al-Shabaab, right? So then Al-Shabaab takes these kids, indoctrinates them, runs them through training camps. And, and now, now they're, they're part of the Al-Shabaab army that's, that's, that's fighting the Somali government that the U.S. and the international community has been trying to get up and get stable um, for a number of years. Are you fighting a two-front uh, battle here when it comes to um, trying to get these child soldiers um, rehabilitated, but at the same time, is if they do participate in any kind of action or they do participate in any kind of action? Let me uh, give you an example. Uh, Dominic Oguin, uh, Onguin, I believe is his name, uh, kidnapped as a child soldier and the international court, uh, caught him and he's now been in war, you know, accused of war crimes. And I think he got, uh, convicted of war crimes. Is that kind of hard to say, okay, we want to rehabilitate them, but at the same time, the international court does look at them as war criminals if they do participate in many of these actions. Dominic is a, is a very hard example. I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, Joe, it, it is. Um, so yes, he, 
he was, I believe, the number three guy in, in the LRA, either number two or number three. Um, he was uh, he was caught or he turned himself in in a remote part of, I believe it was the Central African Republic car in December of, I think, 2015 or 2016. Um, do you know how we verified that it was Dominic Ongwin that was there? How? How? Uh, we... We flew out Anthony, the guy that we're doing this book on. Yeah. We flew Anthony out to this remote airstrip that, that Dominic was being held at by a militia. And uh, when Anthony walked up, even though Anthony had escaped and made a break from Joseph Coney, um, they had no animosity between them. And he and Dominic went up and gave each other a hug and then sat down and started talking. And... Uh, uh, I, I know the guy that was in charge. I wasn't on the ground at the time, but I know the guy that was in charge. And he was like, hey, is this Dominic? And Anthony's like, yes, this is Dominic. So, but now we get at the question of the ICC and war crimes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was abducted as a, young, as a young kid. And then he was forced into, I mean, he was forced into, into, into combat, right? And so if he was abducted at, let's say, 14 years old, and then he's, he's fought combat for three or four years. And then he's working his way up kind of through the rank structure of this illegitimate army. And then he ends up being a 30 plus year old man that is now making decisions and commanding that army. I believe that's what tipped the ICC over between war crimes or child soldier. A child soldier is somebody that's exploited. But at a certain point in time, irregardless of how you were brought up, like you still understand the differences are right and wrong. And when you're 30 years old and you're on a radio and you're ordering the execution of villages, now that's where the ICC is going to say, you know what, you are liable for, for war crimes, irregardless of how you were brought up. And that's exactly the way it's played out for Dominic. Are there any steps, Eric, that any other organizations, NGOs or anybody are taking or making to rehabilitate these kids? Because I get what you're saying. To a certain point, as an adult, you make a decision to go right or left. And sometimes these kids, I'm sure, are just feel uh, fearful for their lives and their families. So they stay in these militia armies because they they don't feel like there's anywhere to go and they're terrified to leave. I mean, is, is there a breaking point to where, I hate to say it, where it's just like, okay, you're past a certain age, you, you're going in this direction, we're not going to be able to help you, so let's just go back to these other kids. Because I feel like until they see that they're safe and they're right and wrong. I feel up until like maybe their mid late twenties, they're almost like brainwashed to thinking that's what they have to do. And it's just, I feel like it'd be hard. It'd be such a tough job to turn these kids around and these young adults around to realize what's going on and how to get them out. Because I mean, when we talked, I think we talked with Mick, what's that movie, um, Machine Gun Kelly, um, which is my favorite one, but like, are there more, and that's a true story. Are there more people out there trying to save these kids like one-on-ones or are there bigger organizations really trying to give them that support they need and to get them out of those areas? Because I know there was a story or two of, of a few of the kids and families from that were based here in LA that are in the US that came over, but it was such a horrible time to figure out. They've never been to America. They never saw electricity running water. How, I mean, how do you guys combat that um that stress level and that normalcy in these kids once you pull them out of there yeah there are other organizations that are 
helping on this. And, you know, we sit on the board of directors for one of them, you know, Grassroots Reconciliation Group, it's termed GRG. And that's exactly what they're doing is they are, um, they're counseling and rehabilitating uh, former child soldiers from the Lord's Resistance Army of Northern Uganda, South Sudan area. Um, it's a process, uh, you know, it's not an expensive process, you know, I mean, you know, with an operating budget of like 50 ish thousand dollars a year, they're able to, to really rehabilitate and counsel and get, you know, 400 members of former child soldiers into society, you know, annually. Um, so it's not super expensive. Um, and there are benevolent organizations out there. The, the age factor that, you know, to your question about the age factor, Sarah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's age combined with the roles that they've done and, and how they've conducted themselves. And that really uh, determines how hardwired they're going to be and how long that rehabilitation and re-education time is going to take. Um, and, you know, if, if we look at uh, ISIS Syria, for example, what we found in that in that particular instance in these refugee camps that are just, you know, these you got these these kids being held indefinitely is that you, the key to them, it's their moms. So refugee camps with their mothers and, you know, their families, um, a lot of times they don't have a the, the male figure is gone, um, but the mothers. Um, are the ones that are either reinforcing the messages of extremism or the mothers are the ones that are trying to find ways to get their kids education of some sort because they know that if they're educated, they're valuable and if they're valuable, they can have a different life. Um, so really, you know, if, if we were going to get an effort on going into the alcohol camp, and I keep bringing up alcohol just because I, I understand it right now, the best in Syria, it would be the approach would be not only directed at the kids, but it would start out more directed at the mothers. Mm -hmm. And then really through screening them and asking them a series of questions, you're going to select which ones are, are either going to be more open as, as a mother, which is, which is going to equate to being more able to have results with their kids versus the ones that are just going to be a completely shut door. And therefore you can have a much harder time making the next step to the kids. So, mm -hmm. Every every situation is going to be different. It's, you, you, the approaches are going to have to be different, and you know it's not just Mick and I. You know, I mean, Mick and I are like we're definitely deep on on the, the topic, you know, globally. But that doesn't mean that we're deep exactly on if you know if it was in a different place geographically in the world. So we're going to rely on on you know some experts from that area. We're going to talk to them. We're really going to get down to it, and then you know. We're, we're going to also rely on our former networks from our past lives of people that know how to really, you know, run good um, psychological screenings, just, just through some very innocuous questions and things to start to understand what we're dealing with. So that's, you know, that's where we want to get with N-Child Soldiery, a highly intelligent, flexible thing that, that we can tailor make to whatever the, the worst problem is ongoing at the time. Right now it's Syria, Iraq. But we're learning our lessons in Africa because that's where Mick and I are, are deepest on it. Let me uh, like a little background yeah. question on you, Eric. Um, what made you uh, join the Navy and become a Navy SEAL? I mean, what what started your journey? You're never okay. okay. Um, 
I had a seventh grade math. So I came from, I come from a super small town in Northwest Montana Um, and uh, a rural, rural kid growing up. And I had a seventh grade math teacher and uh, he had, he had flown F4s in the Navy um, at kind of the height of the cold war era. And he, you know, he was a cool dude. He would wear a a pilot's leather jacket in school. He had a BMW motorbike. Um, you know, I mean, the movie Top Gun had just come out. You got like Tom Cruise hooking up with Kelly McGillis. I mean, you know, like, you know, like what, what kid from a small town wouldn't be like, man, that looks like, you know, that's where, that, that's where adventure is. I want to play uh, beach volleyball in my uh, shirtless, you know, I, there you go. Okay. I got you there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, I expressed an interest in trying to get into one of the service academies and um, my math teacher, uh, he just flat out told me, he's like, he's like, you're, you're not smart enough. He's like, you'll never make it. Um, And uh, totally pissed me off. And anger is one of my better motivators. And I was like, all right, I got you. Um, and, uh, so I, 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 I stuck with that for a while and, uh, it, it really did motivate me all the way through high school. Um, and then, uh, I, I had to do an extra year in order to get accepted to the Naval Academy. So I did a year of prep school and then, um, uh, yeah, when I went to graduate from the Naval Academy, um, my cousin, my younger cousin was actually in his math class. So I sent him a t-shirt back from the Yale Academy that had my name and, you know, the year 1999 that I graduated from the Academy was on this, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was embroidered on that t-shirt. And my, in, in, in class, my, the teacher asked my cousin, he's like, you know, where did you get that shirt? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's my older cousin who's in your class who's graduating here in a month. Um, at the Naval Academy, I wanted to fly, but the more I hung out with pilots, the more I realized that they were fairly individualistic. Um, the more I watched SEALs, uh, the more I was impressed with how they were all for each other. They always had each other's back. They had a philosophy that was like work hard, play hard. Um, and that really just resonated with who I am. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I went through the, the, the selection process, which is pretty competitive coming out of the Naval Academy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I went to, went to buds right after graduation in 99. And, you know, I was, don't they choose you though? I mean, am I right or wrong in this? I mean, you have all these people, I know there's very limited, um, space and people who actually become SEALs is such a huge honor. Don't they come to you the top of the class and they choose you. you like I can't choose to be a seal they come and they choose you because you are the top of the top of those classes is that true that they've um, permeated a myth like that <laughs> no yeah it sounds good okay no, but it's, it sounds super, good so yeah it's 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 highly um it is highly competitive so uh at the start of my junior year at the Naval Academy, I think there were like 210 guys in, in dudes, you know, I mean, it, it, at some point in my, you know, it, it, it's, you know, women could be in the SEAL teams for sure. They just have, you know, they pass standards were absolutely gender blind. Um, but 
anyway, 210-ish guys wanted to be, put their first choices, they want to be a SEAL. And at that point, when I went to the Naval Academy, they took 16. Um, so to go from 210 down to 16, uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of things that you could do, all of them fairly arduous, uh, and they kind of whittle through. And then, you know, they select about 35 guys to go, go spend three weeks in San Diego, run around at the, at the Bud's compound, um, before you're a senior at the Naval Academy. And then when you're a senior at the Naval Academy, they, they will it down even further to about 25 guys that they're going to interview. And they have a real a high pressure kind of interview with a bunch of, of current SEALs and they run through a, a PT test. And, and then out of that, then they choose 16 primary with two alternates. Um, just to get the invitation to then go to BUDS. Uh, when I started BUDS, uh, the day I started, we had 144 guys in my class. Uh, of those 144, 10 of us graduated. So, yeah, I mean, like, it, it whittles down, right? And it's always, you know, kind of to Tony's point, it, uh, you're self-selecting into harder and harder and harder things. And the criteria always gets harder and harder. Um, therefore, if you're not an individual that's teachable, if you're not an individual that is a quick learner, if you're not an individual that you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to kill me to stop me. I'm just not going to stop. That's just the way it is. Then you're just not going to be fit for what the teams are going to ask of you. And <clears throat> it's just, I just know Tony, some of his seal friends, that these guys are beasts. I mean, mentally, physically, they are unstoppable. And I know it is grueling to get to that point. So I think it's so amazing just even say that you're a SEAL, given the stats you just gave us of how many people start out and how many make it, and, and not to get to the whole gender conversation, but are there any women SEALs or anybody who's come close? Or is it just so arduous physically that, I mean, strength-wise, there's only you so know, much I mean, you could do? Like I said, I mean, you know, we're, we're gender blind. I mean, honestly, you know, like, nobody in the teams cares it's ethnicity or gender, right? It's just the standards. If you can meet the standards, because the standards are so damn hard anyway. Like if you can meet that, hey, yeah. power to you. Like, you, you know, um, you know, the only remaining question after that then starts to come into some of the morality questions that you're dealt with out, in, out on the, the far reaches of, of the planet, you know, and you're stuck on your own. But it, as far as getting base entry in and being a functioning member of a, we don't care if you're black, if you're white, if you're orange, if you're purple, right? It doesn't matter. Like what matters is that you can be dependable when the cards are down. And that's why the standards are so high. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're a woman or a man, it, what matters is that you can meet the standard because the standard has, has proven itself to be successful in combat when you really need to be successful. And you can't have any questions at that point. Like those questions have to be answered before then. And, you know, so if you're blind to the race and if you're blind to the gender, but you're not blind to the standard, you'll succeed. Like the SEALs will continue to succeed in hard environments and operations when they have, when, when failure is not an option. And so that's, I, 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 
I, I'm really glad that the, that the that the senior naval leadership, especially the senior SEAL admirals, have just held that. Um, and they're not doing it for political motivations. They're doing it because they know that when the shit hits a fan on day four and you've had no sleep and you're surrounded and you're down 50 to two and you, you don't, that's what it takes. And the standards have pushed you as a person mentally and physically far enough to make you successful in that. So, you know, I, I my hat's off to them. And um, it's just something that for me as a retired SEAL, I hope that we, we don't ever come off as a community. Is there a movie or a TV show out there that you could point out to people uh, to show them what, what is a realistic uh, interpretation of what you guys went through? I stumped him. I stumped that's, him. That's, no, no, Joe, that's, that's, that's the other side that's, of the... Uh... That's usually, but that's usually my question. It's really funny because I'm usually the one that with Mick and our space, I'm usually the one that says, okay, the most realistic shows I've seen are binge. I, that's usually a, one of my parting shots. So I'm kind of impressed, Joe, that you beat me to that. Oh. I, so I don't say G.I. Joe, okay? Oh, G.I. Jane. But her, um, Demi Moore, because G.I. Jane, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. But there's got some, there's some badass like shows out that- there. Yeah, I think that. What's uh, that one with? Um, with I know what you're. I think Discovery Channel has done a. With Jeremy I like they've done a couple specials on it, and I think that those are, like, those are probably the most realistic, um, on the training side of things. And then, you know, uh, the other, the other side to, to you know my community is that there seem to be a lot of guys that are are riding the brand a bit instead of riding for the brand. They're coming out with a lot of, um, I'll call them, uh, you know, some, some glamorous write-ups about their personal experiences and some of these things. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of stopped reading the books because I just, I just felt it was disingenuous uh, to the profession um, that we should be a bit more uh, the silent professional, not the professional when it mattered but then, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go let the brand ride for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and obviously you can point out, well, Hey, they're dumbass. You're on a podcast. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I do not, uh, not recognize the irony of that. Although I would say that 80% of our conversation has been about having enough awareness to help do something righteous, which is, raise the awareness of and limit the use of children being forced into combat. Yeah. So I don't really look at this as, as, as I'm writing the brand, being on your podcast, sir. Um, yeah, but yeah. No, no, it, it's just not that. It's just like, you know, I saw the Hurt Locker, Jeremy Renner. I saw the interviews. You know, there's a few special op movies that mean I'm not talking the Tom Cruise ones, but there are a few out there to Joe's point. And when you talk to these people after the year two years of hardcore training these guys who've been in some of these movies do say it is exhaustingly brutal physically and mentally because they've got to get into that mindset so they have a little bit more of an affinity to how hard it really is i'm not saying there's an exact um was it Catherine Bigelow who did dark uh, green or dark zero 30 i mean there's been a few military ones that were true stories but i mean you it's it's you can't really take yeah, hollywood's exactly. input no offense i'm in la on anything but but you do know by some like that one with the pirates in somalia you do talk to some of these very um 
seasoned actors who aren't the Hollywood glam scene. They're just all about the producing stuff. And they have been very clear the respect they have because they live and breathe this with ex-seals, ex-military, and th their whole actions after the movies were this is hard, this isn't fun, you've got to really be tough. And there's been more support by a few of these guys, you know, helping out since then. But you you can't glamify it. Lives are being lost. There's there's so much horrific stuff going on out there. I mean, and I'm not going to become get into this whole podcast sex is bullshit bullshit, Eric. But honestly, if there is a, a female seal, dude, matter respect, because I know how hard the physical requirements are, no matter how big you are, but guy and how badass you are mentally. I, I it's just, just the physical side of it. I think it'd be tremendous. I don't think I've ever heard ever seen a female seal. And it's not a sexist thing or racing, like you said, it's hitting the standards, hitting that benchmark. But I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be hated or not for this. But there's a reason why you don't see a lot of females in those positions. I mean, the mental and physical strength in itself, females are more emotional, better at multitasking, but it's, it's just a whole different beast and nature of being in the military. I no. think. And am no, I going to get hated for this, so. Joe, for saying no, that live? No, and, and uh, you know, Sarah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I've spent more than a couple of decades doing a lot of really, you know, sensitive and great things for the country and for the international community that I'm very proud of um and a lot of those either the insights that we took or the analysis that we did or some of the best ideas and even some of the some of the execution like it's done by women like there's no there's no bias um you know within within the within within yeah. the this this the soft ranks and the, the seal ranks on this stuff so um you know i mean yeah I mean, you know I mean, some of the most hardcore um, decisions I saw and some of the, you know, like very, very, very hard decisions to make, you know, I watched it come from, from women. They're, they're immensely qualified. And if, you know, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a woman out there that meets the seal standards as they stand, Hey, hats off to her. Um, and uh, yeah. because I know that she would meet the standards and that the standards were reduced. I have a hundred percent confidence that when the cards are down, she'll do just fine. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's like being in like, on this side of the fence in, this, in the political, I mean, non-political world of being a CEO, easy decisions as a CEO, as a leader are easy. Easy decisions are easy to make. The true character and strength is making the hard decisions with the class and grace going into it that you need coming out of it. Making hard decisions is what makes you a leader. Anybody can make an easy decision. So I do think there are a lot of amazing women making very, very pivotal strategic decisions, you know, upper in the ranks. I mean, it is, it, it is what it is whether it's a man or a female, but I do agree with you. Um, it, women are brilliant at making some of these hard decisions, but so are men. Make you, you have, in order to lead, you gotta make hard decisions and stand by it, you know? And I see that in the military and out of the military. Yeah, it's, uh, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an art, right? And but I'm gonna, 
<laughs> I'm going to be sexist right now and be hated for this, Eric, but I don't give a shit. This is my podcast. But if I was stuck in the jungle, I used to joke around with Tony when we went um, a few times on South America. If I got stuck, I want him and his boys coming to hoist me up a helicopter, not some chick. <laughs> I want the guy. I mean, it's just, it's a strange thing, but it's just, you know, I think it's because I've had a few friends in military and I just so much mad respect for people that I personally know when I see how strong and resilient these people are post-military, post-SEAL. They're just the most tremendous human beings of what they're capable of handling and what they're like, you know? I don't think a lot of people have the privilege to know these people in their personal life. And I just, I'm always grateful that some of these guys are friends of mine, you know, because they are no, the it's best cool. guys. And it's a, it's a testament. I mean, uh, being put under that that amount of hardship and adversity and then learning how to internalize it and deal with it, it it just it makes you grow as a person, makes you really understand what you're truly capable of. And I think that's probably what you are seeing in some of those people that you're that you're associating with. And and you're like, man, that that looks different. I'm not sure what that is, but that's different. Um and you know, it isn't it goes way beyond just, you know, how much somebody can bench press, right? It's not about physicality. There's, it's about a depth of character yeah. and a depth of the ability to, you know, like you said it, like Tony, he's, he's just super easy mannerism, but you can tell that he's just got like resolution for days and he's just like, he's a hard individual. You just, yeah. And that's, that's what, that's what training yeah. to these things does. That's what, volunteering again and again and again into harder and harder selection criteria and harder and harder physicality. That's what it, it just breeds over time. No, it's tremendous. Now, and I'm going to let you, and I know we got to run here and I've just been rambling on and stuff because I'm so fascinated by all of this. You guys are taking off uh, early June down to Uganda and you're going to be in there for a few weeks. Um, I know the book is coming out or the documentary, hopefully soon thereafter um, with Mark. So we're all looking forward to that. But we're going to be chatting with you guys live from down there in a few weeks as well. Are you coming? Are you, is there any specific goal you want to come back with when you leave Uganda? I want Mark to have the knowledge that he needs to tell this story passionately. Right. And there's, there's a story, there's a, there's a, there's a male story there. And then there's also the female story there. And both of them were forced as child soldiers and both of them face stuff that's just hugely um, hard and, and challenging. And I want Mark to have the knowledge to tell it in a way that, that the masses then have access to it through his creative abilities. Because I want the masses to to take this, to walk this story of humanity and love and never say die and, you know, like the strength of the human spirit. And I want them to be moved by it because that will, you know, it'll, 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 it'll help change their daily perspectives. And I think that this story is powerful enough to do that. That's what caught Mick and I the very first time we ever heard it and understand it. And it also caught Mark Sullivan the first time that he heard it and understood it. So totally look forward to come back on the show from, yeah. from Uganda. Um, and I, you know, the gift of, of having your, your, your podcast listeners hang out with Anthony for a bit 
Um, he's, he's a great human being. And, you know, I mean, he's self-taught himself multiple languages. I mean, you know, I, I consider myself to be a fairly tough individual. I mean, I've gone all the way through SEAL training. I've been a SEAL for multiple decades. I didn't get shot six times. And if I did get shot, um, you know, like when I took some frag to the head and stuff like that, like I, I went right into a medical staff. <laughs> Anthony just, you know, they, they basically rubbed some dirt on it, you know, just, a, just an AK yeah. wound to the gut. And they're like, hey, you know, come on, kid, get back up. So, yeah, a, a very a, a special, unique individual that I hope your listeners would uh, appreciate listening to. And then, as you said, it's going to be an evolution that will go through Mark's interpretation and then, you know, come out as a, as a book on the end of it. Yeah. Well, it's all about me being in PR, you know, the podcast when we created it last year was addition to the PR firm, telling your narrative, telling your story to send a platform to have a voice to what's important, what's critical in the world and motivate, inspire others. So I'm super excited to have you guys on to talk about all this. Um, quickly where global institute where can people go um what's the url for the global Institute? Uh, you know it's it's the www.globalinstitute.org um yeah okay best place to go and for people and i know we're going to cover this again live with you guys eric but and i know one of the things is it is like everything is financial it's money to help resolve these issues people need the money to get down there to help these kids get back you know, in a normal life. Are there one or two specific organizations that you guys know of for anybody who wants to donate money, time, efforts, or anything? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, from Global Institute, you you can link right into End Child Soldiering, and you can either, you know, contact Mick or I or donate off of the End Child Soldiering page. Or, you know, I would I would say, I kind of, I've, I've talked about grassroots reconciliation group a couple of times, but I've worked with them for a couple of years now. I trust them. They're a good organization. You know, at least 90% of their money goes to the end user. They have very little overhead. It's a bunch of people, you know, on a very selfless cause and they're doing great things. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, I would say either grassroots reconciliation group, GRG, or the end child soldiering would be, you know, greatly appreciated and uh you know we're we'd be honored we, we don't squander money we, we put it where it needs to go yeah oh my god i'm so glad you came on eric i mean and i appreciate you making the time because i know you guys are leaving soon um have a safe flight down uganda yes. looking forward to talking to you guys in a few weeks um and we'll see you guys then but until then sarah miller meet me podcast joe Eric, thank you. For thank you very the time much. Today. Talk to you later, sir. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.